It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after your own. But the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps the perfect sweetness and independence of solitude. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Hey friends, I hope you're doing well today. Welcome to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, your host, Cal Walters. I cannot thank you enough for being here today. I know how valuable your time is, and I hope that this podcast can be a resource for you on your journey as a leader. I know leadership is tough. I hope that the guests on this show inspire you to be your best self, to live a little more intentional in the way you live your life, and to make an impact on your world and your sphere of influence. I started this podcast about 14 months ago, and I am constantly a amazed at how the audience and the community has grown organically. In fact, in addition to the U.S., Apple Podcasts now has us ranked as a top podcast in many other countries, including Spain, Singapore, Australia, Canada, France, India, the UAE, Austria, South Africa, Brazil, Hungary, just to name several of them. And that is truly a testament to the amazing guests that have been willing to come on the show and offer their insights and a testament to you for listening and sharing with your network And I'm so fired up for today's podcast guest. If you know the person I'm interviewing today or if you've met him, you know why. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Mike Irwin, the founder and executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue. Team Red, White, and Blue's mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans by connecting them to their communities through physical and social activity. In addition to being the founder of Team Red, White, and Blue and the executive director, Mike Irwin wears a lot of other hats. And I tell you, One of the things I tend to do when I have a guest on this podcast is I'll ask people about this individual and every single person you talk to about Mike Irwin, they just light up. Mike is a truly unique individual. In fact, one person described him as the Steve Jobs of the nonprofit sector. I had another friend who said, of all the people in the world, if they could literally pick five people that they admire the most, Mike would be on that short list for them. He's also the co-founder and chairman of the Positivity Project, which has been featured on The View. He is the founder and CEO of Character and Leadership Center. He is the co-founder and chairman of Father Capadano High School. He is the co-author with Judge Rand. Raymond Kethledge of Lead Yourself First, a book about inspiring leadership through solitude, which we talk about. And oh, by the way, he is a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves, and he is a professor at West Point. He also deployed three times, served on active duty for 13 years. And so he is just an incredible individual, and it was a privilege to sit down with him. We discuss his why for serving. We talk about resilience and what that means and how he incorporates that into Team Red, White, and Blue. We talk about building relationships and the importance of that. We also talk about growth and how you grow a large organization from a small individual nonprofit way back when he started it to now having hundreds of thousands of participants in Team Red, White, and Blue. We also talk about time management. I mean, the, the amount that Mike has accomplished in his short life is, is incredible. So we talk about that. We also talk about this balance between action and solitude and so much more. And I will put all the links to all of Mike's organizations and to his book on my website. Just go to calwalters.me, just my name.me. Thank you again to all of you that have subscribed to this podcast. If you haven't subscribed, just go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get 
all the future episodes that come out. Also, thank you to all of you that have left a review on Apple Podcasts. That helped us get more exposure, helps us grow, have a bigger impact. So I appreciate every single one of you that have done that. And without any further ado, please enjoy this interview with the amazing Mike Irwin. Mike Irwin, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Cal. Excited to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. It is an honor to have you on. I'm so impressed by the work that you're doing. You are the founder, executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue. You're the co-founder and chairman of The Positivity Project. You're the co-author of Lead Yourself First, which is an incredible book that we'll talk about. You're the founder and CEO of Character and Leadership Center, and uh, you are the co-founder and chairman of a school, a high school. And I'd love to, and not to mention the fact that you were previously in the army, you're still a reserve officer, did three deployments. I'd like to start by asking you about your why, what motivates you? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of this for me goes back to service um, and my faith and the intersection between the idea of adding value to other people's lives and trying to make the world a better place. So obviously, you know, I graduated from West Point in 2002 and I served 13 years on active duty. And from there, really, it was uh, while I was still on active duty, I started uh, Team Red, White, and Blue, my first nonprofit. And it really reminded me and taught me that you can continue to serve and to make a positive impact uh, outside the military. So much of my entire adult life was consumed by how do I do this as a military officer? How do I take care of my soldiers? How do I serve the nation? Uh, and of course, I knew like my dad was a police officer. So I, I, you know, my mom uh, was the first woman police officer on the Syracuse the Police Department wow. um, back in 1974. So I had a family like uh, sort of li- uh, lineage, if you will, of service. But uh, and I knew it was possible to serve outside the military. But like, turns out through the nonprofit sector, you can have a huge impact on so many different people's lives in various ways. And yeah, so my why really boil does boil down to how do I move the needle? How do I help other people uh, to become as uh, resilient as possible, uh, but also to build relationships in their lives. Uh, we know such a huge driver of life satisfaction and happiness and well-being and success is driven by how well do you as a human being connect with other people. And so as I think about like what stitches together Father Capadano High School and the Positivity Project and Team Red, White, and Blue and my time in the Army Reserves and the Character and Leadership Center, it's really about this idea of relationships helping people to develop their character to be better people, which allows them to be more resilient in their lives when they face the inevitable adversity that, that will find you in life. You mentioned resiliency. Is resiliency something that's personal to you? Is that something that's become important to you based on your personal experience? You know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, so studying from the psychology standpoint, so when I was getting my master's degree at the University of Michigan, there was, um, you know, I did a lot of research into post-traumatic growth or PTG, um, you know, which is essentially the the more technical way of thinking about studying resilience in many ways. But um, yeah, it's become personal just because in my own journey, you know, I deployed three times. I saw uh, men and women, uh, you know, killed, severely wounded, come back home, struggle like with the transition out of the military or even just the transition from combat to garrison. Um, and seeing that as a, you know, as someone in my twenties, it really brought to me like an intense focus on just how important it is to help people from a mindset standpoint, to be able to think through how to process the adversity of life. 
Um, and look, no matter who you are, like you're going to struggle. I don't care. Like, you know, I, I say all the time, there's no pill. There's no like resilience pill that like you take and you just bounce back from the adversity. It, it's a combination of factors, um, that really intersects your ability to uh, have support from other human beings. It's also part internal, like, you know, some of your character attributes, like how do you endure and how do you have perspective to know that it's going to get better? And then it's a sense of faith to know that things happen for a purpose and for a reason to include uh, things that don't feel like at the time that they're supposed to happen to us. And so that faith, um, you know, for me in God and in, in, in my Catholic faith, like the intersection of all those things to me is what has made uh, developing resilience in myself, but also in my family and in other people, such a huge passion of my life. Tell us about the transition from the milit from active duty to team red, white, and blue. How did you make the decision to transition? And was that a difficult transition for you? Yeah. So, so why I was fortunate is that while I was in grad school and while I was teaching back at West Point as a major, I had founded and was leading team red, white, and blue. Now I got to a certain point of a certain amount of growth and a certain amount of work like that. I could no longer do that. So, you know, we hired Blaine Smith, a former green beret to become you know, our first full-time executive director um, in, in January of 2013, a couple of years into the organization. But, you know, I was fortunate that I had this like one leg in like, the, you know, the iron cage, like of bureaucracy, the big green machine, right. Uh, you know, SOPs for everything and all that. And then at the same time, right. During my lunch break or early in the morning or late at night, I was working on this entrepreneurial endeavor to enrich the lives of America's veterans. And so I had this experience for quite a many years, really from 2010 until 2015. So almost five years where I was wearing both hats. Obviously, my, my main hat was my army job, right? Um, that was my paycheck. That was where I spent my, you know, my time every week. But I also, you know, realized, and this we'll get into later, I'm sure when we talk about time management, you know, there's 168 hours in a week. If you sleep seven hours a night, you have 119 hours per week that you're awake, you know? And so even if you work 50 hours in your job, um, like, you can find 20 hours a week. If there's something that you're passionate about, whether it's a small company that you're starting or a nonprofit or a cause that you believe in or serving through your church or whatever it might be, like you've got the time. It just means that you've got to cut other things out, right? Like television and, and you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, so for me, that was, you know, a, a big part of it, you know, was that I was able to kind of live in both worlds and, and take the best um, from both worlds to, to make myself a better leader in these various uh, domains in my life, but also to study leadership at the exact same time to help other people to be better, right, as they toggled and transitioned from active duty to uh, the Guard Reserves or to civilian life. It's incredible for me how big Team Red, White, and Blue has become. Now, how, how many people do you have involved and signed up and participating? Yeah, 220,000. Yeah, um, you know, what's interesting is that we're 70% uh, what we call V-grad, veteran, guard, reserve, active duty. Um, so over about 30% of our members are uh, civilians or they are often family members or they know someone who served. But, you know, that's a pretty interesting data point right there. But yeah, we're about 200, close to, you know, 220,000 members right now. Like every organization, the challenge is how do you engage those, as many of those members as possible? Um, like any organization, we've got like a certain percent that are very engaged, some that are, you know, moderately, moderately engaged. And then, you know, a lot of our members, you know, they do a couple events per year. Um, but we really want to try to reach them and to mobilize them to get more consistently involved. But yeah, it's, it's really is about, you know, uh, 
less about being this chapter-based model, which is what we really were in 2012 to, to 17. And it's become this evolution of like, how do we shape the mindset uh, to develop a, you know, again, a more resilient mindset and help veterans to create these healthy habits in their lives around physical activity, but also just around the relationships. Uh, you know, how do we help them to create these healthy habits in their lives that are going to help them to be happier, uh, help them to be healthier, obviously, uh, and then in the process, be more effective at leading their families, leading their volunteer organizations, and being a leader at work. Um, and so we're really invested in the veteran and helping them, uh, those men and women, right, to take care of themselves is kind of the proverbial put the oxygen mask on before you can help other people, right? Like, yes, it's great to serve. It's great to do things for other people and all that. But we also can't lose sight that we've got to be able to take care of ourselves if we want to, over the long game, be able to take care of other people. Yeah, I think that's key. One one thing that's curious to me, and I'd be interested to get your take, is growth. I mean, was it something when you reflect back on Team Red, White, and Blue, did it take off right away or was the growth kind of gradual? And what advice do you have for especially nonprofit leaders where you're dealing with volunteers for growing an organization and scaling an organization like that? Yeah. So, I mean, the growth, the growth question is always is so tricky because it's different based on different sectors and all that. But at the end of the day, like there's just way more noise in the world today than there yeah. was back in 2010 and 11 and 12. So it grew pretty quickly. I mean, it, honestly, my, my initial vision was that we wanted to support 10 wounded warriors per year, T you know, 10, mm -hmm. two, 10 wounded veterans per year was the goal. Um, and that changed really within the, uh, but, uh, at about the 18 month mark, we realized how much what we were doing was resonating with like so many more veterans than we ever thought. And so we had to pivot, uh, to start thinking about scale. And unfortunately we had some support from, you know, one of the world's leading consulting firms. They provided a bunch of pro bono support to help us build a five-year business plan how to think more intentionally about growth. Mm. But yeah, a big part of this really is. Sometimes you come up, with, come up with an idea or a product and you had no idea or no expectation that it was going to take off the way that it did. Um, and sometimes like you just got to make decisions that are hard that says like, hey, we weren't thinking about scale when we started this thing, but we have to now because the demand for it is, is really high, you know? Um, and so to me, when I think about, when I give my thoughts about how to grow or how to scale anything, be it a nonprofit, a company, whatever. It really is. How do you generate what I call WAM power, word of mouth power, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do you get people excited about or fired up about what you're doing, what your product is, whatever it may be to the point that you like make them feel compelled that they have to tell other people about it, right? Hey, I'm wearing this, this logo, this shirt, like this is what I'm doing. This is what it means right now. And if people aren't, you know, and again, I say people, I mean like the average person isn't to some extent motivated enough or inspired enough or find it interesting enough to tell other people. You can throw all the, the digital marketing dollars in the world at, at things. You can spend all the money on Google AdWords and this and that. Like it's not going to really take off, right? It really is all about how do you get other human beings talking to other human beings about what you're doing. And that was something that we knew in the very beginning about Team Red, White, and Blue, there was a book that I read called Herd Theory by Mark Earls. And it's, he's a marketer, but it's written through the lens of like, uh, he was at the forefront of understanding the power of social media and understanding how important it is to drive word of mouth. 
Um, and I read that book at the, the exact right time. And so I brought that mindset to Team Red, White, and Blue in those early years of like, we have got to be talking about it. We've got to be on social media and we've got to be encouraging other people to get so excited about what Team Red, White, and Blue stands for and what it means that they can't help but post about it or tell other people about it. Well, thank you for the incredible work that you and your team have done for the veteran community, the active duty community. I think it's incredible. I love the focus on resilience. I love the willingness to be honest about the, that we need to kind of take care of ourselves too and that that's, that's okay. It's healthy. And so, so thank you for that. I want to ask you too about starting things, action. Uh, we're going to get into solitude, which I think maybe is the other side of this coin yeah. of thinking but you are clearly someone who has a bias for action or at least is willing to take action. I'm, I'm curious on a couple levels. One, how do you shift from an idea to action? And how do you deal with the fear that most of us feel of failure, fear that people are going to uh, make fun of you, imposters? I mean, all these different things that any of us feel potentially when we start to think, Hey, I should do something. How do you deal with that? And maybe you could use some of the, you know, even team red, white, and blue. I'm curious how you, how that went from an idea to something you started. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I mean, the idea of like, to me, one of the great, great compliments you can give somebody to say that they have a bias for action, you know? Um, yeah. but you're right. It is, it is a very strong, um, sort of juxtaposition and comparison and seemingly paradox to, what I've written about and what I talk about a lot, right, which is solitude and thinking. Um, you know, so I would start off by saying that, you know, um, that as, you know, uh, as a bias reaction, like, what does that mean? That means that, like, that you are willing to fail forward. There's a great talk, you know, I think on Goldcast or something by Denzel Washington. He gave it at a graduation and he talked about the idea of failing forward, right? The idea that you're going to fail. The idea is like, are you failing and continuing to pick up the pieces and move forward from there? And that to me is a really big part of the mindset of, you know, uh, and I'll never forget when the rock climber, Tommy Caldwell, Jim Collins brought him to West Point in 2013. When, for those who are familiar with his Dawn Wall journey, right, to be able to climb the most arduous free climb route in the world um, out on the face in Yosemite of El Capitan, and Jim Collins asked him, like, how do you deal with failure? Like, you've been at this now for like five years, and every fall you go trying to do it, and you're failing. And he's like, well, it's just really a mindset. It's not, I'm not failing, I'm growing, right? Mm -hmm. And that, like, affected me as I heard those words, like, wow. Like, so I, I've been very fortunate to be in the room with some of the right people. And that's the great thing about podcasts and things is you get to listen to the stories and the examples that other people share that help us understand like, wow, that's a really powerful, simple switch to flip, right? That, Hey, it's not failure, it's growth. Um, you know? And so like for me, like that's a, been a big part of the mindset is like that I am, I'm willing to, to fall forward. A big part of going back to the other piece though, which is the thinking aspect, right? Uh, it is very important to be spending your time thinking and analyzing and planning and, and then taking action like little bits, you know, it's Jim Collins, what I call Jim Collins 101, first bullets, then cannonballs, right? Like you've got to be like, thinking about like a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, right? And then you, and you learn from it, you get that feedback. Ooh, that was a bad idea, right? Um, and then you say, okay, let's scrap that. Oh, that, ooh, that was a good one. And now you can start packing the gunpowder for the cannonballs. So to know where to really put your, you know, your, your major energy and your effort. And so I, again, I think that that constant analysis and, and thinking is critical to also driving and reinforcing the bias for action loop. 
Um, and then just again, to your going again, putting a bow on the second part of your question about failure is a lot of it really is look, sometimes failure is failure. You can't sit there and say, Oh, that failure was growth. Right. Sometimes if you just flat out fail, cause like you didn't put the effort in, like that's a different story. The thing about Tommy Caldwell's story is that he studied every nook and cranny of that while he did everything he had to do, he went out there, took the action and then like learned from it failed forward. Right. So this is not like an idea of like, Oh, just try whatever you want and fail and man, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. It's the same idea. If you're shooting poorly calibrated bullets and being like, well, I learned from that and I, that looks like it doesn't work. Well, maybe not. Maybe you didn't take the time to calibrate the bullet. Right. So like think of the analogy, however you want. It is about being intentional and thinking about smaller amounts, but then having the capacity to be able to reframe uh, failure, right. As growth, when you get that feedback of, Oh, that was not the right thing. Has there been a failure that comes to the top of your mind that has especially shaped you? Yeah, geez. I mean, like anybody, right. The tons and tons of failures. Um, you know, when I think about, you know, um, you know, t- team red, white, and blue, and I think about the journey, um, uh, and again, we can talk a little bit about the positivity project as well. Um, you know, in a bit, um, cause there's multiple examples from, you know, from each organization I and mean, from the very get go, right. It wasn't a failure, but the idea that, that we are going to be able to go in and to get wounded veterans to be able to raise their hand and say, Hey, yeah, I want support. And I want, I want help from this little small nonprofit. Like that was like, that was a failed idea from the very get go, right. That we had to pivot off of um, when we realized, Oh, turns out what we're doing that veterans seeing fellow veterans running, uh, they started raising their hands and writing into our website and saying, um, running saved my life. This is incredible. This is amazing. Like we could, how do I join this team? And we were like, uh, like, I don't know. Uh, you know, like we, we didn't even, we didn't have, we didn't, so they taught, you know, they taught us, mm-hmm. you know, at the positivity project, you know, the other nonprofit, um, that I co-founded with a, you know, a fellow West point, uh, grad, uh, you know, we had, we built an entire revenue model around training, uh, teachers and educators in positive psychology when it turns out that like that was not right. And that our revenue model should have been built around, uh, you know, the, the strategy and all the resources that we provided, you know, to teachers. And so again, very often, I think when you start something in those first two or three years, you're going to have so many big failures that it's unbelievable. And some of them are like just the flat out hypothesis of how you're going to exist and generate revenue or how you're going to drive impact are just flat out wrong. Um, but the ability is how quickly can you iterate? How quickly can you learn from that and then make decisions and pivot off of that to be able to create the right decision, the right revenue model, the right strategy, right? All those kinds of things. And again, if you're thinking, go back to your previous question, if you're thinking a lot and you're aggressively leaning in and you're paying attention to the feedback, you'll be able to make those pivots and make those decisions, you know, relatively effectively. That's really helpful. And thank you for your willingness, Mike, to share that. Cause I think it's easy to look at your resume and all that you've done and think, Mike Irwin never fails. He never makes mistakes. I can't relate to him. And I think there's other people that we see that are like, oh, I can't relate to that person. But I think every successful person has been shaped by failure more than anything in a lot of ways. And you make a lot of great points there. So, so thanks for your willingness to share that. I'd like to now ask you about solitude. And I think that's a good transition from what you were just talking about with running. One of the incredible contributions of this book for me personally uh, lead yourself first, inspiring leadership through solitude is the definition that you give of solitude. And I'm just going to read that real quick. And I want to ask you about really your journey with solitude. And it says it's simply a subjective state of mind in which the mind 
isolated from input from other minds, works through a problem on its own. Mike, can you tell us how solitude became an important part of your life? Yeah. So, yeah. And so that definition, as we talked about before, another Cal, Cal Newport, um, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, um, you know, the author of Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, you know, that, that was what he kind of pulled out from the book as being the most meaningful thing to him was that definition. It's the mind free from the input from other minds. Um, and so when we, and so I was in grad school when I actually read an article in 2009, it was a, it was a speech, uh, a talk uh, given at West Point by a guy named Bill Dershowitz. And he talked about the role of solitude and leadership, but really he talked more than just about solitude. He talked about nonconformity. Like how do you have the clarity and the courage to be able to see that a, the current path or the current, whatever it is that's going on right now is not right. And then to be able to come up with a different approach and a different solution. And so to me, like it became really apparent as I was in graduate school in 2009, 10 and 11, as I look back at my life as an intelligence officer, my entire job as an intel officer in the army was to essentially to be an antagonist, right? To the operations side to say, no, no, no. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Like, what if the enemy does this? What if they do that? Right. And my whole job was to be a nonconformist. Um, and the only way that you really effectively come up with nonconformist ideas, I'm a believer, um, is, is by spending time inside your own mind. Because, yes, you can brainstorm with other people and get their input, but true, like nonconforming ideas, uh, they germinate, right? They start very often inside one's own mind. Um, and as I look back at my, the biggest decisions I made as an intelligence officer, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, 04, 05, 06, 07, 09, all those big decisions, right? I realized like that I gained the clarity on like a run at midnight around the fob. Um, or, you know, I gained it on the walk to the dining facility to, to get lunch, you know, on a hot day in the summer at Camp Taji, right? And that I really needed that, that time alone and, and that time away from all the intel reports, all the human, the SIGINT, the IMIN, all of it, right? There was this, I was overwhelmed by information and that's great, but I needed to be able to step back from it to be able to make sense of it. And, um, and I did that instinctively, not like, oh, I need to do this. Like I didn't like have this intentional game plan to do it. I just started instinctively doing it. And so as I look back at my military career, I'm like, wow, this is a really important concept. And that's when I met my co-author, uh, federal judge Ray Kethledge. You know, and we talked about this stuff at great length and he talked about it in terms of writing opinions and in his own leadership life and all the, the ways where isolating your mind from the input from all these other minds became such an, a critically important thing to do to be able to think clearly and to be able to, uh, to lead other people effectively. And, and that's really where you know, the idea came from. How do you find solitude now in your daily life? We've already talked about all the many things that you're doing, but how does Mike Irwin find solitude? Yeah, uh, it's tricky. So you know, I got five kids, right? 10 and under. Got 32 acre farm uh, with pigs, chickens, ducks, uh, vegetable garden, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so honestly, I, I've used that to make it work for me. So the, the, minute and a half walk from my house when I put my muck boots on out to the pigsty, right? Or to let the chickens out in the morning, like that's a minute and a half each way, right? Um, and so that's one of the key points, like to be very practical about this is that, you know, there is deep solitude. There is like the Cal Newport kind of like the, the deep work that he needs multiple sustained hours to really work through something, right? Like a big personnel decision or a big decision about the future direction that you're taking the organization. Like you can't get there in a minute and a half, 
right? Um, but there are lots of these moments where five, you know, I call them the five minute windows, right? Where you can drive somewhere, like you're going to the grocery store. You don't need to put the radio on and listen to one song, right? Or listen to talk radio or people bantering back and forth. You can simply just driving quiet and give yourself that space and that time because why you just been reading emails and on you know facetimes and and on video chats for the past you know two and a half hours in a row right and you need to kind of put it down um so to me i find lots of these smaller windows in smaller pockets uh of course running you know when i run um that's a great place to find it in a more sustained period of time for 30 45 60 minutes at a time um and then you just got to have the discipline to know when you need that bigger, more sustained solitude. Um, and so I like writing. So writing forces me into that mechanism, right? Because you can't write effectively when you're listening, you know, to, well, some people can listen to other like songs or whatever, but like for the most part, like when you quiet down your mind is when you, most people think and therefore write the best. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I come up with some of these practices, I force myself to write or I force myself to do certain things. Um, that, that, that then gets me to that place of solitude, again, defined as that subjective state where the mind is free from the input from other minds. There's so many great examples that you talk about in this book of people and how they incorporate solitude. And I loved just the sheer number of different examples and different ways in which people can incorporate solitude, even into busy, really demanding lives. Are there any examples that specifically stand out to you really come to the top of your mind from the book? Yeah, there's, you know, there's so, uh, and obviously it's kind of like picking your favorite child, you know what I mean? <laughs> when, you, when you spend a lot of time researching, analyzing, and thinking about um, people, you know, so from the military side of me, like, you know, like actually the, you know, the general Ulysses S. Grant story, um, you know, um, you know, was, was really powerful. This idea of like, just, I just, Hey, what can we do, sir, to help you out? Like, just leave me the hell alone. Like, give me some time. Right. Like, and he just like spent time just, you know, that was like that, that, that sort of uh, deeper thinking, like I just need the, the clarity to come up with a way outside the box strategy and approach mm. of what we need to do here in Vicksburg to be able to, right? And so if you study it, right, from the military history standpoint, and you know, like what they did, like it was, it was crazy. Most people thought that he was going to kill his enti- you know, the, the entire force that he had, right? And it turned out to be one of the most brilliant, you know, maneuvers, um, you know, of modern, you know, of civil war on you know, um, not just in the civil war, right? It was, but it was so bold. It was audacious, right? It was only that you could only achieve that idea. Cause why, if you were talking about that idea with somebody else, right? That, Hey, we're going to go live off the land. We're going to march South. We're going to cross the river and kind of, and we're going to envelop them. Like, you know, like if you talk to most people about it, they'd be like, no, sir, that's not going to work. No, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. Right? Like, so some of the ideas that have to be so bold and so crazy can only be hatched and then fermented inside one's own mind. Because if you start sharing it with people too early before you have conviction on it, they're gonna they're gonna try to shoot at the uh, shoot at the shreds, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one to me, like personally, I think resonates. But you know, the ones as well, you know, um, talking about you know Martin Luther King Jr., Pope John Paul II, you know, fighting against communism. Martin Luther King Jr. like leading, you know. The, the civil rights movement at the age of 25. Most people don't realize that how young he was when he had the courage to step up and start leading the civil rights movement. Um, you know, General Eisenhower, you know, before D-Day. So just so many great, like, inspiring examples. And I tell people all the time, like, if you read the book from cover to cover, like, in somewhat of a decent cadence, let's say you read it in, like, a couple of weeks, like, and you're not inspired or motivated, like, I got nothing oh, yeah. for you. Because like, <laughs> you profile so many of these inspiring yeah. examples that it's just, 
you know, and this, of course I'm biased, right. As the co-author, but like, there's just so many that they stack up on top of each other. I'm like, man, like if we haven't inspired you to make solitude a priority in your life in some way, then it's probably never going to happen. And that's the entire approach, Cal, that we took to the book. Ray was emphatic about, you know, uh, insistent about this. And I agreed. I can sit there and just lecture people about you need to, you know, put down your cell phones and get away from, you know, technology and right. Like it's no, we had to inspire people through these historical and and more modern day examples to make solitude a practice and and a reality in your life. Because if you're not motivated to do it, then you're you're probably not going to make it happen in, in the world today with all the noise and all the things competing for your time and energy and attention. I completely agree, Mike. It's not just you saying that the the bias. I I think the the beauty of this book too is you can read this and you've got to be able to pull out at least four or five uh, stories and examples that really identify you can really identify with, and then you can take those and run with them. It can be the the CEO who carves out ninety minutes a day on their calendar to have white space because they just know how valuable that is and makes it a priority for their people on their team to have white space uh, or it can be general Eisenhower and, you know, speaking with general Marshall and trying to come up with a plan of how to handle this Pacific right after Pearl Harbor and saying, I need two hours. Just this, this concept of valuing solitude is was one of my biggest takeaways. And I think knowing that it's valuable allows me to take advantage of those moments when I have them. I also think, and I'd be curious to get your take, Mike, that, it's a muscle that you have to develop, especially in our current age and time with technology. It's like the, there's that temptation. I call it the boredom muscle. It's my ability to be bored and fight the urge to pull up my phone or fight the urge to throw in some AirPods and listen to something. Do you find that it's a muscle Absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the way, obviously we're, we're, you know, we're recording a podcast, right? So there's obviously tremendous value yeah. in like listening to the right podcast, reading the right books. Cause by the way, reading books, like that's not solitude, right? You're opening up your mind to, to the input from other people's minds. Um, you know, and so like, it's absolutely something that, you know, like any habit, right? The more you practice it, the more you value it, the more you prioritize it and make it a reality in your life, the easier it becomes to access it. And that's especially important in something when you're talking about your attention and your focus, when there's so many things pulling at that uh, all day long, that like if you don't practice it, uh, you can't just like turn a switch on and go, ah, oh, well, I'm just gonna. Because even if you do, like if you live in a hyperstate of distraction from from that standpoint, like you will find yourself um, finding it nearly impossible to focus on anything for more than like a couple of minutes, you know. And so yeah. if you're talking about something deeper that needs more focus and attention, you don't just flip a switch and go, oh, like I'm gonna do that now. Like you have to practice it and, and make it something that you access routinely so that, and, you know, and by the way, to, to this point, Cal, I use the analogy of like swinging a five minute mile. Mm. Like a couple of years ago, I could run a five minute mile, right? Um, today I cannot, you could put $1 billion, one mile for me <laughs> and say, if you get there in five minutes or less, you can keep it. I couldn't do it, right? Cause you need like the combination of leg, lung, heart, and mental strength to be able to, to make that happen. Right. And like, you don't just, you have to be training it. You have to be grooming it so that when you need to flip the switch, like you're, you're trained, you're ready for it. And that's a huge part about solitude as well. Do you agree with Cal Newport about us having solitude deprivation right now? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you know, just like the, and then I talked about this just recently, but the idea that, uh, you know, that like with our smartphones, right, that basically the distractions, the entertainment, the noise, it follows you around, right? So if you don't have a strategy or a game plan to put the phone down or put it and separate yourself from it, 
like you almost stand no chance, right? And therefore you're constantly finding yourself accessing information and ideas and some of it very valuable and some of it very important, right? I'm not sitting there and saying like we should not use our phones or anything like that. It's simply saying is like, what's the right balance? Because uh, there is, as he talks about a lot in digital minerals, and there is a real cost, like a significant measurable cost to our well-being, to our ability to focus, to think, to come up with bold ideas, et cetera. Um, and oh, by the way, to build relationships if you're in a hyper state of distraction, because now I can't even focus on you. The, person, the very person right in front of me or I'm sitting to on the, next to me on the couch, like I, I'm not even, even able to focus, right? Um, so there is a significant solitude deprivation that so many people experience in life because of how we've been conditioned and trained to be constantly seeking the input from other minds. How have you managed that, Mike? Obviously, you use social media a lot for your businesses. I, for me, it's personally a journey. Sometimes I have a great week and then the next week I'm not that great. I've deleted apps from my phones. Where are you at with this? How do you manage currently your technology use? And you've already mentioned it. There certainly are incredible benefits. Here we are doing yeah. a Zoom podcast recording. We're going through COVID-19 where we're also experiencing the benefits of technology. But how do you personally manage technology, both the pros and the cons? Yeah, I think there's no like, this is how I do it every single day of the year, right? So there's certain days, you know, uh, you know, a great book by Matthew Kelly called The Rhythm of Life that talks all about like these rhythms. And, you know, like, so there should be some periods of the day, and maybe even a day, maybe Sunday, right, where you kind of like put the phone down, right, more, um, if not for the entire day is ideal. But like, despite that, like, look, the joke is that people, people write the books that they need to read. You know, and like, these are like, these are messages that I need to consistently remind myself of, um, you know, but again, for me, it really does boil down to having the strategy to separate myself from my phone for periods of time. There's a drawer I've got in my house. I put it in. Um, but if it's out of sight, it's out of mind, you know, um, that, that becomes an important, you know, part of it for of the journey for me. Um, but yeah, if you're sitting there on the couch and you got your phone, like in arm's reach, you're toast because as soon as it dings or it buzzes or someone texts you or you have a thought that goes in your eye, I wonder what the weather's gonna be like tomorrow, right? Boom. Like all these, like as soon as your mind starts wandering, you pull up your phone and you, and you wonder an answer out loud via Siri to Google and, you know, and now you, that takes you down another rabbit hole, right? So, you know, it, it is this idea like of, of being aware that the benefit that you get from knowing every little thing on your mind in the moment is actually not as valuable as you think it is. And the cost to, to constantly being tuned in and having access to, to information, right, is real. Uh, and so coming up with a balance and a strategy becomes critical. So for me, that's like the biggest thing that I emphasize and that I practice in my own life is coming up with, with plans to be able to just separate myself from it for periods of time because I don't have some superpower from a discipline standpoint to keep it carried around on me and then like it dings or it rings or whatever. And then I, or that I have an idea about like wondering, you know, like what's going on, you know, with COVID or whatever that I don't just pull it out and, and search. Right. Um, which then leads from two minutes to eight minutes to 20 minutes. Right. Like very few people have got that caliber level of, you know, that level of discipline to be able to just shut it down. Um, and so it really is coming up with the habits and, and the practices to separate yourself from it. Yeah, that's really good. I, I think that it, to me, it comes back to just somehow finding intentional, deliberate use of technology and not just like, as you described it being this accidental thing that I let just happen to me. Cause it's not necessarily neutral in that regard. It's going to beat me in terms of my discipline and willpower. I only have so much 
And uh, I love the idea too. I, I do that as well. Just leave my phone since tends to be my best way of being present with the people I love and you know, doing the things I want to do. I want to ask you, Mike, about everyone I talk to about you and everything I've seen of you in, in the different posts. You have an incredible amount of energy. And I want to ask you about energy management and time management. You also have five kids. You have a farm, as you've already described. You have all these nonprofits. What advice would you give to people about energy management and time management? Yeah. So, I mean, so I think that energy management stems from time management, right? So I think that um, time management is critical. Um, you know, uh, and so those who are familiar with Stephen Covey and, you know, he actually gets it from Eisenhower, right? The idea of how do you think about your time, where you prioritize your time and all that. Um, it's the proverbial, like learn how to get good at saying no to, you know, to things. Um, right. It's hard, right? So people reach out, you know, so even like, you know, like you and I, right, we were, you know, you sent out a you know, note and like, sometimes it just, like I knew that I wanted to do this podcast, right? Cause I know who you are and I know like, you know, like, you know, and then of course the Chevy reaches out and says, Hey, like, you know, so there's various people that, so it sometimes it just takes time. Right. And it, and it, and it takes perseverance to be able to, to get through uh, to people. Not cause like I'm trying to say no, but like, because like I'm saying yes to things that are more pressing or more yeah. important right now. Right. So I tell people all the time, it's like, like if I don't respond to something like, you know, it's, you know, like I think a lot of us are this way. Don't take it personal. Like I'm just tending to other things that are a bigger priority for me right now. Yeah. And so if you really want to have a conversation with somebody, you really want to do this or that, like then you have to have perseverance, just knowing that people are not like being jerks and saying no to you, but they're just tending to other things intuitively or intentionally that they, that are definitely more important to them, like in the moment, right on that day or on that week. Um, so again, saying, uh, what you say yes to and what, and what you give your time to then impacts your energy. Um, and so for me, so like just from a genetic standpoint, I've always been a high energy person. Like I think my mom and dad would tell you that from like when I was a kid, um, that my character strength of enthusiasm is my top one. Um, so that, that is true, but a lot of it is, is the proverbial, like, what do you feed? Like the two, the story of two wolves, right? Do you feed the one that's angry and bitter or do you feed the one that's like, you know, changing, you know, um, and, and doing like all these things, uh, you know, from a positive standpoint, you know? Uh, and so for me, that's what I do. Like I try to feed that wolf that is as often as possible, you know, is, um, is, positive is trying to make a difference is making an impact and so i draw energy kind of like the proverbial like you got your cell phone and like you plug it into the wall like like i'm constantly doing things that are um uh you know are giving me energy energizing me getting me excited etc and that to me allows me to almost have this like sort of like renewable sort of uh battery if you will of energy because so much of what i spend my time on is energizing is exciting and um, and, and it is making a difference in people's lives. And for me, that's where, you know, the, like I derive so much of the enthusiasm and energy that I have that I take from one thing to the next, from one nonprofit to the next, to my farm, to my church, to my family, back out to, you know, to team red, white, and blue. Right. And it's this loop, um, that just allows me to keep drawing positive energy from, from various endeavors that I'm involved in. What's the typical, uh, time that you get up and go to bed? So I go to bed usually around 1130 and wake up between 530 and six. So I think six hours is probably on the low end. Like you can't go less than that without driving. You know, for the, you know, even people who are very like highly energized, um, 
like without starting to see some sort of energy and performance degradation. Um, but six and a half hours, yeah, I don't think you need more than seven. You know, I think you get going beyond more than seven hours, right? Um, and, is, and again, it's not like overnight that you're going to get there, but you can definitely train by losing five minutes of sleep per week. And you can wean yourself, like anything, right? You can wean yourself off of you. If you're doing eight hours a week right now, right, you can wean yourself down to seven. Right. Um, and I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people do this over time to include my wife who used to be, you know, a, a big sleeper and then we, having kids and all that, like she's <laughs> not sleeping near as much as she used to, but you know, like over time you can definitely learn how to function really effectively on less sleep. Um, but there does become a, a balance point where you like, I think that the average person starts to then see, um, you know, performance problems. Mm. What was what is your most gifted book, Mike? What is a book that you would recommend to us? Um, you know, like I, there are so many uh, books, right? Like for most people that I you know have read that have, have impacted me. I literally just finished one with my son the other night. Um, my my personal favorite book uh, is The Alchemist by Paulo mm-hmm. Coelho. Um, it's those who know it, right? It's a non it's it's a fiction book, um, but it is it's spiritual. It's uh, it's allegorical. It's like, it's just so powerful, uh, in giving you the perspective of life, you know, uh, and, and that setbacks are part of life and how you see those and you don't let them to define you or to weigh you down and how, you know, again, if you're really pursuing what you're called to do, that those setbacks are actually a part of the journey that help you get to where you need to go. Uh, man, I just get so juiced when I, when I, and I read, and I reread the alchemist every one to two years, you know, um, you know, it's, it's just incredible. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, there's, you know, there's a lot of books, you know, around leadership, you know, that, that I kind of brush up, you know, as a, as a nonprofit leader, Jim Collins's addendum, you know, called good to great for the social sector. Um, mm-hmm. there's like 40, 45 pages that talks about lessons and ideas and concepts from good to great, uh, the book that he wrote to, uh, you know, to the social sector, to nonprofits in, in thinking about that. But to me, that's a great one that I also read every year thinking about how do you build a great social sector organization, uh, and hint, it doesn't take place in two years or five. It's at the minimum 10, usually the minimum 15 years, right? So mm-hmm. building enduring great organizations is time consuming. It does take a, uh, a lot of energy, but it also just takes a lot of time. That's so good. I think we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and, and underestimate what can be done in a decade. And I yep. think that's, that's really cool. I think that's Bill Gates, right? He's, he's got a similar quote on that. I think yeah. like that idea, it's so true, right? Like um, it really is the cumulative, it's the aggregate, it's the long fuse, it's the long play, whatever analogy you want to use, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the real power of life resides. And it's, um, uh, it takes a lot of discipline to stick to the long play, especially in our instant gratification world that we live in today. So, Well, Mike, as we're wrapping up here, I think we have like two minutes. I'd love for you, can you please tell us about the work that you're doing with the Positivity Project and tell us how to connect with you and learn more about, especially Team Red, White, and Blue and the Positivity Project. Yeah, absolutely. So the Positivity Project founded in 2015. Uh, you know, our mission is to empower America's youth to build positive relationships and become their best selves. Really, it's a focus on the 24 character strengths that sit at the foundation of positive psychology and a deliberate and explicit focus on building good relationships in life and how important it is to be able to do that. Um, 
So yeah, we're in about almost 600 schools across the country right now. There's daily lesson plans. It's a 32 week strategy that starts in mid September and goes until mid May. Um, so it's pretty cool to see how it's all played out and, and how we're growing and impacting over 300,000 children on a daily basis to hopefully have a positive impact on the future character and the future capacity for connecting with other human beings in the nation. So, um, so yeah, for all this stuff, there's actually a website, mikeirwin.net. Um, it kind of it, it kind of combines and it just kind of shows and, and hyperlinks to all these various endeavors that I'm involved in. Um, but I'm also you know, on LinkedIn and on you know uh, uh, Instagram and Twitter at, at you know it's Irwin Art you know E R W I N R W B. So you can find me on there um, as well. But um, but yeah, like there's just a, as you know, there's just obviously a lot going on in the world today with the coronavirus and all that. And I think a lot of people are in search of and looking for you know, um, guidance and resources and tools and strategies to help them to be able to negotiate and to navigate the chaos of life. And so all these various organizations that I'm involved in, to a certain extent, are geared at doing that. Um, so uh, it's, it's pretty cool to be, have the opportunity to be for, afforded the, the chance to be working on these various missions that are, you know, working to help people out at this critical point in life. I love it. I love it. And we'll put links to all of that at my website, calwalters.com. M-E. Mike, keep up the great work. You are doing awesome work, you and your team. I love it. Our world is better for it. And uh, thank you so much for giving us your time today on this podcast. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Looking forward to meeting you in person here uh, once all this physical distancing stuff is lifted and hopefully you're out towards uh, Fort Bragg area. But yeah, appreciate the chance to connect and talk about all this stuff with you, Cal, and keep up the great work on your end. And uh, I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right, brother. Friends, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Mike Irwin as much as I did. What an incredible wealth of knowledge from an incredible person who really has accomplished so much and so much focused on service. One of my favorite uh, takeaways was this idea of failing forward, this idea of shooting those precise bullets and then cannonballs and knowing that failure is part of the process. Mike distinguished you know, failure because you didn't plan from failure after you've really been deliberate and intentional about, about the way you're approaching something. We also, I loved our discussion about action and solitude and how those two things can work together. One of the great contributions of Mike's book is that definition of solitude, this idea of having time where it's we're free from the input of other minds. And I just want to encourage you as you head out today to find those little moments in your day, whether you're walking or running or in your car or just sitting in your office and you turn down the noise and allow your mind to process, to think, to deal with hard things, especially as a leader. We have to have those moments to think. And I think Mike makes a great case for that in his book, Lead Yourself First. Friends, remember that life is short, so let's go make it count today.